Daniela Ohad, and you are listening to Designing the 21st Century. Every other week, I host visionaries, extraordinary talents who stand at the forefront of the world of design and architecture and who bring the best, most fascinating stories. Today with me are five giant men who believe in groundbreaking innovation and who join me in exploring the power of understanding design with their own cutting-edge work and thinking. Kai Bergman, partner in Bjorke Engels Group and responsible for the firm's projects in over 20 different countries. Craig Robbins, the Miami-based renowned real estate developer who has created new neighborhoods and renewed neglected ones. Mitchell Joachim, founder of Terraform One, a nonprofit group that seeks to stop the extinction of planetary species through pioneering projects in design. Architect Dan Kaplan, who is passionate about New York City and about urban living and who creates high-performance buildings that are planted in their environments. And Serban UNESCO, an architect who makes the most amazing furniture and sculpture where form, happy colors, and narratives are combined into his unique personal creations. Kai Bergman is a founding senior partner at Bjorke Engel Group. The firm has made its name for merging the utopian with the utilitarian, for creating expressive and surprising architecture that transcends traditions. Ski slope on the roof of a power plant, twisted towers, community parks, complex shapes, distorted perspective and vanishing points, breathtaking and powerful architecture of dreams, and social change. Hi, Kai. Hi, Daniel. So Big Group is super influential with amazingly innovative and intellectual projects that make the general public understand that architecture matters, that architecture is spectacular expression of our culture and time, that it is an important aspect of humanity. What is your secret? Well, Thank you, first of all, for inviting me to this podcast. And our approach to design is really to deal with challenges that confront us in our society, in our surroundings. So we're working on projects like resiliency or transportation, even issues of health, uh, along with projects that are you know, what you conceive an architect would do, buildings and public realm. So by really dealing with societal challenges. I think that a lot of people are actually interested in understanding how architects and architectural thinking can, uh, in a way, help and benefit the the future of these issues. So uh, that has transformed here in New York, where I live and work, into looking at challenges of protecting the city against rising seawaters, looking at transportation systems, and even looking at our own neighborhood here in Dumbo, New York. So I do want to talk to you about New York. When I look at the list of your projects in New York, they sound up to a conversation between past and future. 
And let's start with these two amazing, amazing projects that come to address climate changes, the dry line and the Rivering Waterfront Master Plan. Actually, both projects are along the East River. One is on the Manhattan side and the other river ring is on the Brooklyn side. And one is a public funded project uh, in which the federal government and the city government is uh, protecting two and a half miles of Manhattan's waterfront. Uh, really, the, the, uh, the area that was most affected by uh, Superstorm Sandy uh, nine years ago. And it's, it's really looking at ways to create a social infrastructure is what we call it. How can we invest in our cities and in our protective infrastructure so that it protects us against those events like floods and storms, but at the same time can also benefit the neighborhood with a park. And by investing in the park, we also invest in people's health, well-being. Uh, recreation. And the opposite side, the River Ring project, is actually how can we develop other systems of helping to finance these resiliency projects that through a private developed project, the private developer is actually investing in the water uh, infrastructure and the coastline to protect the neighborhood behind it. You participated in, and, and you became the finalist of the Van Allen's Reimagining Brooklyn Bridge competition. I think the Brooklyn Bridge is actually a pinch point in the city. When it was actually first built, you know, 140 years ago, there were, I would say, uh, circa 425,000 people that moved across the bridge daily. Today, we actually only have a little over 100,000 people traveling over the bridge. We've actually regressed. And the reason being is that the car is so prioritized. Uh, previously, the bridge actually served as a rail link, moving a lot more people across. Now we put people and bicycles into the tiniest of, of places. So what we did is we reimagined the bridge as its intended connective tissue between Lower Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn. And we have modeled uh, with more priority given to people and bicycles and e-scooters uh, that we could actually double the, uh, the amount of people that use the bridge by making it more accessible to different modes of transportation. And you participated in the professional category. What does it mean to participate in a competition? So Van Allen has held several competitions over its 110-year lifespan where it actually uses competitions as a means to get ideas. Uh, in this case, it was a two-step competition. Uh, I believe they received many, many uh, kind of proposals, but then they selected three finalists. The three finalists did get an, a small honorarium but I think all of us have invested our ideas and our time uh, to give much more back to the competition. Amazing, those projects that you're involved with. And I want to ask you to conclude. Uh, I know you went to graduate school. Yes. I remember somewhere that you said that uh, you don't learn a lot in school that can serve you later. And for the students in this audience, what do you suggest to take from school to the world of practicing architecture? And I know that you're a teacher, of course, as well. 
I would perhaps uh, just say that I think school is a wonderful place to uh, truly find your own voice because I think is school offers you that safe place to develop your thinking. I think though that it also has certain limitations and that by expanding the school, the, the learning that happens there into your, you could say first forays into the field. And, and by field, I don't mean only architecture. You can learn just as much in a, a range of professions. We, we actually at BIG, we have 30 different sort of uh, degrees from our, uh, the Bigsters that work here in New York because they come from previous experience. We have, you know, a biochemistry degree folks, folks that have come with uh, ballet and have been dancers that then are practicing architecture uh, as, a, as a new kind of field. But when you consider how many different aspects that architects are actually involved in, when you are designing a theater, having the perspective of a, of, of a ballerina is extremely important to know how that theater functions. Uh, the same for a life science building. If we have a biochemist that studied how to work in a laboratory, they bring this wealth of personal experience. And that is really what makes, I think, you a good architect. Craig Robbins is a renowned and visionary real estate developer, art patron, and collector based in Miami. As a CEO and president of DACRA, Robbins focuses on creating communities that integrate art, design, and architecture. He was responsible for the development of the Miami Design District from an abandoned, rundown area into a global center for design, fashion, and art. Craig has played a key role in the renewal of South Beach in the early 90s and in restoring and saving many of its Art Deco landmarks. Craig, you were born in Miami and it has been your home for most of your life. So how was Miami back then in the 70s? When I was growing up, I lived on Miami Beach and basically I would say that Miami Beach was on the decline. It had a very glorious time in the 50s and 60s. It was almost like a precursor to Las Vegas. Everybody would come, the Beatles, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., all the, the celebrities of the time. And then it started to decline. The area, the Art Deco District, the, the southern part of Miami Beach, had become a retirement village. People who had immigrated to the United States after World War II and worked in factories mainly, they then, with their social security, moved into the Art Deco hotel rooms as apartments and lived there for the rest of their lives. So it was a more quiet place. There wasn't a lot of energy at the time. And Miami Beach was basically like almost a retirement village. So you have mastered the art of creating neighborhoods. And I remember hearing you once talking that you are interested in neighborhoods, not in particular buildings. And in those neighborhoods, real estate, restoration, culture, design, and beauty are all integrated. And it is particularly visible in their renewed and truly remarkable 
Design District, where I always visit when I come to Miami, which is really your baby. You know, when I go to Miami, to the Design District, it is very clear that you are concerned with things that the, I would say, the typical real estate developer is not such as urban fabric and good architecture and great taste. So how this, you know, very sort of unorthodox and I'm sure more expensive approach back to real estate value and enrichment? Well, it is true that it's more expensive, but it also is generally a lot more profitable. So the normal developer will buy a piece of land and it's not that they don't care about everything around them, but their primary financial motivation is to make the most that they can out of that land. And so that may cause them to disregard what would necessarily make the area around them more valuable. But when you become a stakeholder in a neighborhood and you own lots of property in the neighborhood and you think of it as one place, then your focus, just even for the sense of profit, not because you're a good person or a bad person, but you want to make the most, is you want to make sure that whatever you add to that neighborhood makes all the other properties worth more and makes the entire neighborhood more desirable. Ultimately, that may mean in the short term that it's a little more expensive to do that one particular project. But it also means in the long term that the whole neighborhood is more valuable. So the design district is a neighborhood, but it's a, a place to experience. It's not like a mall or a shopping center. It's a neighborhood. And I think that really adds to its strength. I, I know, and I can tell you personally that every time I go to Miami, I want to go there because I love experiencing the new, always there is always something new, and I always do some shopping there. So here, this is We love you. <laughs> you know, you are known for your passion for collecting design, which is my passion as well. But what does it mean to you living with good, you know, historical, important design, both contemporary and from vintage. My perspective is that it enriches your life. I see art and design as a frontier from which mankind advances. And so when you can enrich your life by just having your experience totally integrated with art and design, where you're always looking at it, you're always thinking about it, whether it's conscious or unconscious. I think it it elevates the, the life experience. At least that's that's my perception. We do it in our homes, do it in our offices, and we also do it in our projects. And for me, anyway, it makes a difference. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. And I think most collectors would agree with you. And you brought the Art Basel Fair to Miami. And then you co-founded Design Miami. And I want to ask, what is the contribution of these two fairs to Miami Beach of the 21st century? Well, when I helped Art Basel to come, the then director, Sam Keller, and I really spent some time talking about how it could be different. And for me, the inspiration was Salone and Milano, because Salone every year was this unbelievable thing that I had never seen where a whole city was celebrating design. And then interestingly, when Sam Keller asked if I would found design show, because he wanted a design show to coincide with Art Basel in 2005, a few years after Art Basel had started in 2002, I co-founded it with Ambra Mehta. And it was really surprising. It 
did something for the world that people, you know, hadn't experienced. And that was, it was the first time that on the same level as like the best art fair in the world, there was a furniture fair that was advocating limited edition contemporary design and historical design. And I think it instantly proved that design was collectible in a similar way to art. This program is supported by Regorate, specializing in the sale of modern and contemporary art, ceramics, jewelry, and design at auction. With a strong independent voice and dedication to presenting materials in fresh and innovative ways, Regorate hosts more than 50 curated auctions each year in a broad range of categories and at various price points. This spring, Regorate is pleased to present a special collection of works from the legendary Italian firm Danese, alongside multiple auctions of art and design, demonstrating that everyone can live with great pieces. Mitchell Joachim is an award-winning architect who has devoted his creative career to visionary ecological design and urbanism, pushing for radical green planning of the 21st century city. Mitchell co-founded Terraform One. It is a nonprofit group or organization seeking to create smart cities, energy-efficient houses, and finding design solutions to extinction of trees, planetary species, and wildlife. So Mitchell, you were on the list of the 100 people who are changing America by Rolling Stone magazine. What do you want to change in the old order of America? I know you want to change a lot. Wow. What would I change in America? I like these uh, very low ball, easy questions first. <laughs> well. The first thing we could do is change more light bulbs and weatherize our buildings. That is so simple. And I'm always saying that. And the the Obama administration was big doing something like that. I changed all the bulbs after I spoke to you last time. Nice. (laughs) Great. And it works better, right? Feels better. You know, your projects, when I look at your projects, they look sometimes they're belonging to uh, science fiction movies. Yeah. Is that a question or a compliment? Well, okay. (laughs) Well, we learn a lot from science fiction, don't we? We're doing a project now with NASA on the future of food uh, for deep space missions and then translate that back for terrestrial use and how would we farm if uh, if we had colonized Mars or, or if we're on the moon and we need to get sustainable sources of food. And guess what? Science fiction has been thinking about this also since the 50s. And one of the first things we did is we looked at fictive narratives of astronauts or people in space and their food systems, which is really the Apollo missions. This is the basically anything you can pack in a, in a little soft container and suck out with a straw to harvesting crickets in space or mealworms in space and grinding them and milling them into protein sources. That could make anything from pizza dough to bagels to all kinds of protein that you would need, infinitely replicatable. So these fictive narratives, the science fiction part, we use that as the big point of departure, and then we engineer it to something that's practical. You know, some people that listen to you or that know about your projects uh, may think that they are mostly utopian 
And sometimes I think that may be just theoretical, but some have been brought into reality. And one of them that I want to speak to you about, because I'm totally, totally excited about, is a project in Los Angeles. It's a tower designed by Aram Chen from ODA, where the two of you turned a parking garage at the base of the tower into a monarch butterfly sanctuary and monarch butterflies are those black and orange species yeah i love iran and oda is awesome and that's like putting two superheroes together like superman and batman i'm gonna be batman in this case he could be superman i just i love the costumes but yeah no iran had this uh tower uh and it's it's still in production uh there on olive street in downtown los angeles and it wasn't connecting to the public, wasn't making sense as far as what the developer can do for art. It wasn't kind of meeting the ground plane in a way that thought about biodiversity. It was, it was just heavily developer-driven, which you have to do. You've got to get the numbers to work. I mean, at the end of the day, there, there has to be a return on equity for something like this. So the question was, what can we do more? not just for humans, but for the environment and maybe for some other species. So here we looked at a project that Terraform's been working on, which is saving monarch butterflies from extinction. And uh, that was key. We could actually integrate a system that looks at the life cycle of butterflies from laying eggs to uh, milkweed, to caterpillar phases, to the chrysili stage, to when they reproduce. We can integrate their life cycle into the skin of a building. How many of them? Depends on the size and the massing of the building. I mean, right now in New York City, we've lost over 90 million monarchs. So they are not extinct, but they're definitely becoming endangered. That sounds like really like a dream project. And how, how do you think that this approach benefits people or inspire people who visit and see that? I think people want amenities, but they're kind of, they're oversaturated with the usual coffee shop or some sort of, I don't know, mixed use space that's not really exciting anymore and uh, doesn't really do it for them. I think people want amenities that actually highlight the environment itself and introduce them to a beautiful organism. Dan Kaplan is a senior partner at the architecture firm FX Collaborative. He serves in its design leadership capacity for many of the firm's projects across the globe. Dan champions sustainable architecture, and as an educator, he is a visiting lecturer at Cornell. His love for urban architecture and passion for buildings and spaces that add up to neighborhoods have been at the essence of his philosophy. Dan, you are known for your efforts to make every building a part of its particular urban fabric. Can you give an example of a building in New York that has that, that looks as a part of its surrounding place, that looks as if it has grown there naturally? You know, um, I always speak to whatever uh, city we work in, and especially uh, in New York, I always seek to find buildings that are of the essence of New York. And, and New York, of course, is a skyscraper city. And really the quintessential 
skyscraper period is, is the Art Deco, where really the form was was, was really, uh, or the typology was really brought to the fore. You know, one of the most New York high rises that I feel that is captures the essence of the city and and always to me really resonated with with the spirit of the place is the uh, McGraw Hill building on West 42nd Street. You know, if you take a close look at that building, it, it is an industrial strength building that is tough and 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 direct and and really it's a vertical factory, but it has this wonderful, it meets the ground graciously and it meets the sky with, with exuberance. And to me, that really captures uh, the New York building. I absolutely love, love this building. But let's talk about 21st architecture. What do you think that every good 21st century building should have? I believe that every great 21st century building has to have a real, true integration of natural forces and natural fabric uh, in its conception. Give me an example in New York. So we've just completed a building at one Willoughby Square. We're actually where, where offices are moving to. And it sits on a park, on a new park. And, you know, what's really interesting about that building is that a third of the floors of the office building floors, one out of three, has direct access to outdoor space that overlooks that park. You know that a lot of the buildings that have been erected in New York were designed by star architects. So I'm going to ask you the $1 million question. How important is it for real estate to be successful, to have the big name behind it? Well, there's a couple of answers to that question. If you're talking about the selling of very top-of-the-market, high-end condominium residences. Developers and appraisers and so forth will tell you that it's very important. I do think for real estate in general and for city building in general, and those two things are very intertwined, that really most value is created over the long haul by creating iconic places and iconic neighborhoods not iconic buildings. You know, in pandemic, many people uh, left New York City. And for those who have not left, like you and I, (laughs) it has been an extraordinary experience, really, because I was feeling that I was living history. And I was feeling that I see New York that will never be the same, hopefully. And it has been sort of a city of silence where, you know, all its glory disappeared. But it is when you fall in love with New York as a New Yorker. You started taking architecture walks. Yeah. And you published a beautiful essay about it. Thank you. You just put that so beautifully that, you you know, you fall in love again with with the city. Um, You know, A friend of mine, Leo Rubenfein, who's a a great photographer and and an essayist, after 9-11, wrote this book called Wounded Cities. And it was he went around of all the global cities and took pictures of people's faces and you could see the pain. But but, you know, I last year in in April, you know, when we were really in lockdown and you could go out, you know, for an hour to take a walk. uh, My wife and I walked around our wounded city and, you know, to walk through Soho with not seeing one person or 
or or walk through Greenwich Village and and see on Bleecker Street and see an, another soul down the street, you really just start to look around and you you sort of it's a pause, it's a stock taking, and you know looking at the old architecture and the new architecture and pausing and it's you know there's this notion that of course it started with slow food. But, you know, slow cities. And we had the shock in New York of experiencing the slow city. And I, I sort of like what I saw. You know, it, it's, it's a beautiful, layered, rich, historical, new, vibrant place. Sarah UNESCO is a trained architect who works in Brooklyn creating sculptures furniture, and architecture follies that look like elegant cartoons. Through his distinctive vocabulary and creative expression, he explores vibrant colors, playful forms, and the essence of drawings. While his work is always fun and energetic, it also filled with narrative, making the viewers thinking differently about design. So, sir, when you know you, when I look at your chairs and I've seen them at RN Company Gallery, your chairs look like colorful sketches. They look almost like animals. They are taken from children's books or from animated films, and they bring happiness and humor to the interior space. Yeah, that's that's happiness is good. Uh, I I want to. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I feel uh, my my design history and present is you know it's a, it's a it's almost parallel to my my interests my my um, in my life and I always try to bring so, I, the the personal the, the the things I'm excited about the the things that I like to look at or even draw or and and bring that into the work and you know it's 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 really a, a wonderment of all exploring all these things that I love. And I try to put that together through, I guess, through my architectural past, which is a little bit more rigid, more structured. So I take the contrast of that would be my exploration with shapes and forms. They come short, they come from children's books, they come from shapes that I see on the street or anything. There is this kind of deeper syntax that I, I am putting in my head. You know, I have to admit to you that I'm not a color person and that I live in colorless home. But when I look at your pieces, the colors that you use, the combinations are very unexpected. And it makes me fall in love with colors. Interesting. You know, when I was in architecture school, I, I, I wore only black. I, all my work up until five years ago was black and white. Uh, I, and, and again, what I was saying for, to, uh, kind of in the beginning was I allowed these things in. I allowed, let's say, you know, I falling in love or allowing uh, someone's eyes to inspire or influence you. Like I allow these, all these things that in my life at all times that we each experience, I let, I allow those experiences to, to sculpt my, my desires and how I work. It's, it's very much, it's, it's, it's not, it's not separated life and work. There's no separation between it. And I, I try to just, it's, it's a world that I'm building that it's, I'm the, the mere kind of leader of it. And, it's it's all coming together. So color, when I discovered color, I was falling in love. I was, you know, I was just, I, I was open. And then that's when it was this explosion. That's that explosion, that curiosity and love for color. I want that again to carry through the same way the line carries through. 
So your pieces tell stories. And as you say, it's like life and work and the merge together. I want to ask you about your architecture because you are a trained architect. How do you use your architecture skills to create furniture? And also whether your furniture is architectural. Because, you know, sometimes when we look at furniture, it's very easy to say, oh, that was made by a fashion designer. Oh, that was made by an architect. Oh, that was made by industrial designer. Is that true with your pieces? A, a little bit. I, uh, uh, Sosas, the designer, he, I remember seeing whether well, it was a, a, a show, I think, at the, at the Matt Breuer. There was a quote, it was like, architecture is a, it's a, a, an older person's game, you know, and his career, of course, his career arc was he started building houses a bit, much later in his, in his career. And then prior to that, he was seeing his furniture as these kind of maquettes. So you can, deep down, he was trained as an architect. He then had this different path through his life. So talking about architecture, you started creating architecture follies. What, what is it? That's part of the, the road that I'm paving and that that I'm paving that's a little unusual and the architectural folly uh, comes you know from the English garden it was a kind of a functionalist building that would entertain these large gardens you know uh, centuries ago and and I that's kind of I guess that's where I am right now in my headspace I'm I'm inching towards architecture so this is just a way of taking my sculpture and furniture to to an, a, a shelter like idea you are listening to Designing the 21st Century. Thanks for joining me today. I will be back in two weeks with a global acclaimed Japanese architect, Ken Gokuma, who will speak about his love story with Tokyo. Tokyo.